Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. This recording starts after the session has already begun. I'm kind of going to start from the basis of this is going to be a, a kind of a quick online on soil biology and what it has to do, but I'm not going to go through the whole life cycle of everything, but just some new updates. Uh, first of all, I think when we think of soils, we consider that soil biodiversity is part of the soil formation, uh, that they have a lot of the biodiversity in the soils really sustains everything we see above ground, and it's often left out of both models because it's very difficult to get a handle on some of these organisms in soil and how much biomass they have and how much carbon they're contributing, but also it varies a lot from ecosystem to ecosystem, as you can imagine. Um, this is a picture of nematodes. That's what I study, so I'm going to be talking about one particular group. This is a hugely diverse group of animals that occurs in soils. They're microscopic, about as thin as your, your eyelash or smaller. Uh, and there's just hundreds, there's a high abundance of them. But what I particularly want to point out is that you can see the diversity here, that they're very different morphologically, but they also have different functional roles in soil. In decomposition, some of them eat fungi, some of them only, I can identify these, only eat bacteria, others eat. eat. So they fill every, every slot in a soil food web. Now, because there are so many organisms in soil, if you think about our if you think about ants, termites, millipedes, centipedes, you know, I could go on. But if I'm looking at nematodes and the diversity is so high in a handful of soil out here, how do you actually tell if climate change is having an effect on a whole mass of animals and microbes that you pull up in a handful of soil? So that's kind of been my, uh, my study. I've been working in the Antarctic desert, um, particularly the dry valleys of Antarctica, about 77 south, for a number of years where we have monitored this area of soil. It stays this way. It's kind of captured in a freezer time. And it has very low precipitation. These are very typical desert soils of high pH, hyper-arid, very, very, very low carbon. When you look at, say, soil respiration coming out, these will be <laughs> at the bottom of the amount of soil respiration per same unit of soil. And so we've been studying these for a number of years and just tracking what happens to them over climate change and also doing observations and manipulative experiments. But I just want to give you the, the nuts and bolts. There is no other higher organism, no other higher animal down there besides nematodes. So this uh, is pretty much what you see in terms of primary productivity. It's just algae. It's when the melt streams start to melt about six weeks per year. You get the brown algae, you get different types of quality of carbon. There's sucrose and there's, there's uh, mannitol, <laughs> the types of carbon, but nevertheless, it's very patchy across the landscape because it has to be where the glacier front has just melted because the sun has hit it for a few hours. So this is our basis of carbon, and also in lakes. They're frozen lakes, and at the base of these are cyanobacterial mats, and they come up and are blown around. And I just want to emphasize that this particular area is considered one of the coldest, wet, the coldest driest, uh, windiest places on Earth. So this is a real, to find that 
the highest animal is hidden in the soil and that most of the life is in soil is quite remarkable, but it was kind of heaven for me because there's only three species that I have to deal with. So we could track all of these species, and I must say that the dominant one is the biggest one here. That is Scott Nema. It's a bacterial feeder, and so it made it very tractable to go in and check it each year and see how many juveniles, how many adults, males, you know, that sort of thing. So E.O. Wilson has called it the lions and tigers because of the dry valleys, because that's, that's it. And I kind of like that. I'm sure Scott Dumman doesn't care. But here's the point. Does it matter if a single species is declining with climate change, with, with the cooler weather? So this is a 12, I'm giving you a 12-year period we monitored where it was actually getting colder where the rest of the planet was warming. And does it matter if we see that? We saw that with this cooling climate over 12 years, we had a 65% decline in the populations of this nematode. We also saw that when we put that into a model and tried to calculate, this is some of Jeb Barrett's work, uh, that it was about a 30% decline in soil carbon cycling. So now th this is you know, one nematode monitored over a period of times, and there's thousands of species out here, and as I mentioned, lots more. But we've got an urgency with climate change. We've got an urgency with what's happening to soils. We've got thinking about soils and sequestration of carbon. So all in all, you know, the, the looking at the dry valleys, they're really a local scale study. And the question for a number of us is you may not have met many people who work in soil, fauna in soil, uh, just food webs, looking at it, and that, that's because there's not many of us. So the thing we did in 2011 was a number of us got together at a bar downtown. It was an international meeting like this. We got together in a bar. I'm not going to tell you, but later I'll tell you. It's a good one for conversation. And by about 2 o'clock in the morning, we had decided that there was enough science known that we ought to start a global soil biodiversity initiative. And we put the word out very quickly. The EU jumped in and said, yes, we really want to make this contribution because we know they're such an important part of the cycling of nutrients in soil. So one of the things we have done, as was mentioned, um, is all the people that study various organisms got together, about 130 scientists, wrote this um, soil biodiversity atlas. It was jointly published with the EU. It's online on our webpage. You can just pull off each chapter you want. You don't have to read the whole thing, or you can get the whole thing in PDF from the EU. But it is, uh, as of 2016, it was our update for what we kind of knew. It's not a, it goes into management, it goes into what they do in terms of soils, but it hasn't got a lot of estimates. Some of the estimates of how much carbon are very low. The thing that we're doing now is that the CBD, the Convention on Biological Diversity last November, called specifically, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven, they called specifically for what are the status and trends of soil biodiversity. Because even these global biodiversity assessments where we're looking at threatened species, you look at those and most of them are above ground, and rightly so. I mean, who's going to remember their favorite nematode overnight except me? And, and so, the, you, you know, you have these threatened species, but they cut off threatened species below ground. And as we're seeing changes that we're 
these two questions. One, do, do nematodes as a group have enough carbon to make any difference in these global cycles? And secondly, what would happen, and that's where we're going, there's lots more global papers. So out of this GSBI, we, this is recently published, July of 2019. It was about a three-year paper where we, all these people sent their data in. We, uh, Thomas Crowther and his lab went after it, and here's just some stats. Number one, I knew this, but here's a picture. Nematodes are, we've got some evidence now. They're pretty abundant compared to other animals, but here's the soil carbon stuff that we were work, working so hard on. Global soil nematode biomass is equivalent to about 82% of total human biomass on Earth. We've got the carbon numbers there, and that the CO2 respired is equivalent to about 15% of fossil fuel emissions and 2.2% of soil organic carbon. Now, people are going to come back and say, well, that isn't how can you really be sure? We can't be sure. But this is the best standardized approximation we have been able to come up with. And what I want to say about the Global Soil Biodiversity Initiative is you can go into the literature and seeing that people are putting out what do we know about either the species numbers or what particular organism might be threatened and their carbon. So all this again works into a complex food web in soils that is turning over and processing this carbon. But we went a little bit further. The top part is where is this carbon storage? Where do we have the greatest abundance, the greatest biomass? And guess what? The tundra, it's, the, it's up in the peat areas. So we've got another complexity of what's going to happen to that. And we already are going to hear a lot of talk about that. So put that in there. I'd also like to say that this estimate of soil animals of two gigatons of carbon, our data is now showing, and in the past we've contributed to these kind of estimates, uh, our data is now showing that you know, it's three times that much just with the nematodes. So we've got to look at this in more detail. But this is kind of something that was hot off the press. I thought I would bring it up to you. And if you want to go to Dublin in two years, we're all getting together again. <laughs> so thanks very much. Are you going to go to a bar in Dublin? I'm sure. <laughs> That's where great ideas come from. Okay. Thanks, Diane, for a real, real comprehensive and illuminating presentation. So we're going to have a lot of time to talk at the end, but uh, I'm going to invite any SCJ member that wants a couple, <laughs> that just want to ask a couple of uh, compact questions, if anybody would like. I'm curious how you found a 12-year cooling period on a continent that's warming. Well, it is only the Antarctic continent is huge. It's bigger than the United States. Whoops, sorry. The question was, how did we find cooling that was happening in Antarctica when everywhere else was warming? And in actuality, it was kind of be like saying the difference between Seattle and Miami. You know, it's a huge continent. And as you get further south, uh, that particular area, because Antarctica is isolated by all these, these currents, these countercurrents, uh, that particular area cooled for about from 80, I think it was 89 to about 2000. And that's when we started seeing the big changes. And I didn't give you that data. Yeah. One more right there. Um, Sorry. You said that soil biodiversity is part of soil formation. Can you? Yeah. Have a I think I think it's just real. Uh, go to. I mean, these guys will probably know it faster than me. But Hans Yenny said there were five factors in the formation of soil, and biota were one of them. And usually in the past we've studied it as microbes because we could get our handles on the microbes 
part of it. But when you read his paper, you know, he was talking that the biota are one of the five factors that help form soil. Okay, um, thanks so much. Um, Keith Postian's going to talk now, and after that, it's going to be uh, Kevin and John. Okay. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for everyone for coming out. Thanks for Rich for giving me the opportunity to come here this morning and, and be with y'all. Uh, so I'm going to talk to uh, talk a little bit about. Uh, Rich has asked me to talk about about land use and greenhouse gases and and greenhouse gas mitigation. So I, I'm going to try to go quickly through some ideas and 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 not spend a huge amount of time. But uh, and and I think probably. A lot of you are probably familiar with this in terms of, you know, looking at global greenhouse gases um, and and where they're headed. They're headed up, but uh, I think that probably the thing that that's uh, maybe less appreciated by a lot of the general public, anyway, is that uh, is that it's not only fossil fuels, right? It's it's uh, it's land use and uh, in including agriculture, forestry, land conversion. You know, about 25 percent of the total. Uh, greenhouse gas effect from human activities is is in the land use sector and and that if you look at that pie chart then from from EPA you know it's it's one of the the, the biggest single sectors contributing to that okay so we know that over here if you look at it yeah the the biggest effect is from from carbon dioxide mainly from fossil fuels this this kind of yellow area but there is, uh, from, from land use, particularly things like deforestation, et cetera, there's a fair carbon dioxide uh, contribution from those sources. But then you've got these non-CO2 greenhouse gases, nitrous oxide and methane in particular, that are quite important. And agriculture uh, in particular is an important source for both methane and nitrous oxide. Um, and then I guess the other thing is, you know, we humans have impacted – the land surface for a long time, uh, probably since the introduction of agriculture is actually when large-scale transformations of the Earth's surface by human activities really started, you know, somewhere, you know, around 10,000 years ago, give or take. And, you know, there's been some recent work that, that you know, what have been the consequences of the last 10,000 years of human activities, particularly in terms of converting land systems, forests, prairies, et cetera, into our agricultural systems is that we've lost a, an enormous amount of carbon from that was originally in the soils of those native ecosystems. And it works out to somewhere on the order of about 500 billion tons of CO2 equivalents is what has been essentially lost from global soils over that period of time. So we've had that diminishing. And there's a paper Jonathan Sanderman had a PNAS paper recently, and, and the, there they talk about it's a, something on, on the order of 130 billion tons or petagrams of, of carbon. So in CO2 equivalents, it works out to about, you know, half a trillion tons. And so when we think about, um, about how we're going to try to, in the future, rebalance uh, you know, our, our economy uh, to, to deal with climate change, our, how we're going to reimagine and re, uh, you know, change our land use systems, that sort of lost sink, if you will, is, is, is also an opportunity. Can we, you know, 
transform our land use systems to gain back a substantial part of what they once held, that would be a tremendous opportunity in terms of carbon dioxide drawdown, if you will, from the atmosphere. Uh, so, but going forward, I would also then say that not only it's the CO2 story, but also agriculture has to transform itself in a way that it, 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 it also reduces emissions of these other non-CO2 greenhouse gases. So just quickly, so can we do this? Yeah, how, how, how would we do that? Well, it's, it's all about how you manage the land, right? So uh, it's a, you know, these processes are affected by climate and the soil type, et cetera, but fundamentally they're, they're largely under our control and there's different ways to do it. We can look at sort of our existing management practice suites and can we do more conservation agricultural practices? That's a way to rebuild soil carbon. In the future, there's also uh, things that we refer to in, as kind of frontier technologies. Can we change the attributes of, of the crops we plant and, and, and some of the you know, management practices? And this, this kind of a, uh, of, a, of a classification really comes out of this National Academies report that, that Rich had mentioned before. So I'm going to riff on that really, uh, really briefly. But, you know, so conventional technologies, these are things that, you know, we know how to do now. They're actually out there. They're occurring in the landscape. And in a sense, can we do more of this in some way? Can we, you know, make sure that there's a plant growing on the the, the, the land all the time with things like cover crops and, and stuff like this. Can we take degraded lands that are really productive for annual cropland, put them back into, into prairie or something like this? Can we improve our grazing systems, agroforestry, you know, restore peatlands where we've got organic soils that if we drain those, convert them to agriculture, they're tremendously large sources of, of carbon dioxide. And so we know how to do all these things now. Uh, we could do a lot more of it. Uh, but we also potentially, you know, in the future, uh, you know, ag technologies and, and sort of research and development has always gone into improving yields or, you know, different things, disease resistance, et cetera. Gee, can we turn loose uh, crop breeders and say, can we breed crops that um, – you know, that have different attributes in their root systems that make those root systems, you know, bigger, deeper, uh, you know, perhaps to, to turn over more slowly? Uh, or can we even, you know, do something that, that seems a little bit crazy, and that's instead of annual plants that produce grains, can we have perennial plants that produce grain? And the Land Institute in Salinas, Kansas, a lot of you probably know, that's actually a picture of an intermediate wheatgrass called Kernza, and you can go and drink... Uh, uh, long root ale, they call it, uh, that, that Patagonia uh, does in, in concert with them. It's a long, you know, it's a long, hard slog, but in, in a way, working on things, you know, kind of out-of-the-box ideas like perennial grains have really only been worked on for a few decades. What if we really put some effort into, into, into those kind of things? And then there's other things that, uh, you know, there are organic amendments, things like biochar. John's going to talk more about that. Can we, you know, can we repurpose uh, organic amendments coming from other parts of the economy uh, to, um, you know, to, to, to be part of this solution? Uh, how, how much could it be? Well, it's, it's hard to say. There's a, this is, again, for the National Academies report, and you can look at this. And so these are billion tons of CO2 per year. 
and somewhere probably on the order of you know two to four uh, billion tons per year, and maybe if you have some of these frontier technologies, uh, a higher amount than that. So, so what does that mean, you know, from the standpoint of, of fighting climate change? The current estimates are that even with the most aggressive uh, carbon, uh, most aggressive fossil fuel and, and, and emission reductions that we can achieve by the end of the century, we're probably going to need somewhere on the order of 10 to 15 billion tons of CO2 removal through tree planting, through direct air capture and sequestration, through geological, you know, enhanced weathering. There's different technologies to do this, but it turns out that, you know, potentially our soils have the capability of, of maybe doing, you know, 25, 30 percent of this big heavy lifting to, you know, change our effect on the atmosphere to be able to uh, adhere to this, uh, to this uh, Paris type of less than two degree um, target. So how are we going to do this? We've got to incentivize farmers, right? We've got to, those are the guys that are doing the management. There's different ways governments can do market-based incentives, you know, things like carbon offset ecosystem services. On the demand side, companies that want to produce sustainable products can can try to, uh, you know, incentivize and, and sell to, you know, consumers that want low carbon footprints. Uh, so that's all. We, we know there's some policy uh, levers that we can use. The, the tricky part and where sort of the research that, that I do with, with my group is, is, is really on the kind of the quantification side. And that's because when we're looking at things like land use systems and greenhouse gases, they're non-point source, they're, they're highly variable across the landscape, there's, there's all this complexity, so we can't just go out there with our, you know, tricorder and point it and say, gee, there's the carbon emissions, right? We'd like to do that, but uh, that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. So we've got to have a, a, a platform where we use experiments and models and remote sensing, and, and, and we put this, this all together as a way to quantify and inform, you know, from the user to the policymaker to the business, you know, what, what's actually happening, uh, and, and can, we, can we quantify the benefits that, that, are, that the farmers are producing in such a way that, that you know, a market can, can, can function then. And so in particular, I just wanted to I'll finish with one last kind of a, uh, a plug, I guess, for the, some of the work that we do here at CSU is really, you know, can we also develop tools that at the individual farm scale that will embed a lot of complex science and, uh, and, 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 and guide us uh, in, in, in how we move forward in changing our land, land use practices. And so we've got a couple of tools. Comet Farm, Comet Planner, they're on the web and they're pretty cool because you can go in and you can imagine your own farm and you can put in your management and stuff uh, and, and get out estimates of changes in soil carbon, greenhouse gases, lots of cool things. And this is, you know, being used in USDA. We're working with a number of states that are looking at healthy soil programs as well as companies that are doing either carbon offset kinds of things or trying to sustainable supply chain stuff. So some, that's some of the work that we're doing here, and uh, if you have any any questions or interest in that, then uh, I'll be around for the morning. Thanks. Thanks, Keith. That was quite comprehensive. Gave us a lot to think about. We're doing fine time-wise. Um, maybe a couple of Wait, questions, and there'll be time to follow up at the end too. Yeah, I've got one. 
I'm Randy Loftus. I teach at the University of North Texas. Um, the slide where you show where the various uh, studies have uh, uh, quantified the, the carbon benefits of different strategies, do those generally assume uh, any change or no change in the energy input into from the farming practices? Yeah. No. So the question is, is when we're looking at uh, at these changes in management practices to uh, to uh, to sequester carbon or reduce greenhouse gases. Are we also looking at the energy impacts of you know energy use on farm? And and I would say the you know the answer is is yes in at least in the terms of I think the the standard uh, the standard quantification the things that we you know try to put into into these calculators because there's a so there's not only the fossil fuel energy that you would be burning, say, in your tractor or your, you know, your harvesters, your machinery, but there's also important uh, carbon dioxide, what we refer to as embodied greenhouse gas emissions. So if you, uh, fertilizer, for example, requires a lot of, of energy, a lot of, and typically fossil fuel uh, derived energy and, and natural gas as a, as a, as a, uh, as a feedstock to produce. So, uh, and I think John may go into a little bit this at, at when he when he talks. We we really need to do a, a life cycle analysis kind of a, of a of a of a calculation to see you know what's the total net greenhouse gas impacts of these practices. Sarah Everts, Carleton University. Um, quick question about perennials. Mm -hmm. uh, that was interesting to me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. No, that's a great question. So the question was, why why are perennial plants, you know, perennial, uh, vegetative, perennial grains, something like that? Why why would they be particularly, um, you know, high efficacy for carbon storage? And, and the biggest part of that is is that they, uh, you know, we we know from from perennial grasses that. You know, they produce seeds, but the seeds are too small for us to use for, for really a food source, right? But, you know, but the vegetation is used by animals or whatever. Um, that perennial plants, they're, you know, because they're, you know, they go over multiple years, and typically they, they allocate more of the carbon that they capture through photosynthesis below ground into roots. The roots are there. They're permanent. They tend, tend to be more deeply rooted often. Uh, as you said before, also perennial systems, you're not uh, disturbing those. So we know uh, that you know, perennial, you know, tall grass prairies, for example, have among the largest amounts of carbon storage because of those things. Now, the deal with perennial grains is kind of like, well, on the one hand, you want to breed crops that allocate more carbon, more photosynthate to the seed. And so where does that come from? And so part of the challenge is can you, you know, is it more than just a zero-sum game? Can you still have high carbon capture allocation below ground, but also additional carbon that gets stored in the seed? So it's a, you know, it's a tough business, uh, but, uh, you know, there's certainly, uh, you know, possibilities along those lines. Um, we'll go really quick for one compact question, and then we got yeah, it. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, and I, I, so the question was, what about the, you know, is the yield capacity enough to justify? And I think that question is, you know, we don't know yet. So I would say, uh, you know, and I'm not a plant breeder, but uh, it's still been a relatively short period of time that people have actually been working on this. So I think there are theoretical reasons to believe that it, you know, that it's possible. Although I would say that probably, you know, by almost almost by definition, you'll never have as high a seed yield with a perennial as you would have with an annual, right? Probably not. But can we have a high enough yield that it makes sense both environmentally and, and, and economically? I think that's still the question that probably the most interesting work that's going on now is actually in perennial rice. And it turns out that for whatever reason, there are uh, perennial rice varieties that are have been quite high yielding, so not quite as high as annual rice, but but you know getting up close to that. So I think that you know the future, the time will tell. But I think the key is, uh, you know, there hasn't been a lot of R and D investment in that area, and so it's it's a it's a potentially interesting uh, thing for the future. Thanks so much, and please keep your questions. We'll have time at the end too, and we're going to have uh, Kevin. Good morning. Thank you for coming, and thank you for inviting me. My name is Kevin Schaefer. I'm at the National Snow and Ice Data Center, and I study permafrost. This is a picture of my crew or my posse. Uh, this is at the end of a very long and tiring field trip, and we were quite happy to be finally done. And when we do our work, we definitely get down into the dirt to study the soil. This is uh, in Yellowknife. We were there just this summer in Northwest Territories. Now, you know, what exactly is permafrost? Well, permafrost is frozen soil or frozen dirt. You can imagine you take dirt in your backyard and you fill it with water and you put it in the freezer. That's what permafrost looks like. And here's a nice picture. You know, at the very top, you can see some vegetation, and the active layer freezes and thaws every single year. It thaws in the summer, then refreezes in the winter. And then underneath that is permafrost, which is permanently frozen. Now, the ice in the soil acts like cement, and it binds the soil particles together such that permafrost is very hard, very resistant to erosion, very tough. Uh, you know, in fact, it's kind of like concrete. This is a colleague of mine. You could see a drill bit right in the middle there. He accidentally froze the drill bit into the permafrost and had to go back to town to get a jackhammer to get it out. Uh, naturally, the drill bit did not look very good after this adventure. But, you know, when it's frozen, it's really solid. And when it's thawed, it changes to mud. And what happens is... Uh, damaged infrastructure and this is a good example of that this is an apartment building in Siberia and it happened that they didn't build it very well and the the heat from the interior of the building thawed out the permafrost and it collapsed and in fact this collapse occurred within 72 hours of the first cracks appearing uh, naturally this is this is no good so you know I'm showing you this to give you an idea that you know soil is not just the, the biology up in the high latitudes, people have to build on the soils, and they depend on the permafrost being intact and solid in order to build properly. Now, permafrost contains a huge amount of organic matter. Uh, and the organic matter is in the form of frozen grass roots and things like that. And what happened there is, you know, the, the, 
the, the organic matter gets buried and then gets frozen. And to show that, to illustrate that, this is a picture, uh, I'm sorry the color didn't turn out too good, too well here, but uh, this is a picture of frozen grass. It's 32,000 years old. It's about 35 meters down. This is in a tunnel dug into the permafrost near Fairbanks. And it's frozen. It, the organic matter in the permafrost is not like petrified or fossilized. It's actually just frozen. In your mind, just picture you take broccoli and you put it into the freezer and it'll stay frozen in broccoli as long as it stays frozen. You thaw it out though and the organic matter begins to decay and releases carbon dioxide. And here's a good example. Uh, oh, I got another picture here. This is uh, frozen wood. This happens to be about 30,000 years old. And you can see it's just, just wood. And frozen, it, it stops the de organic decay. And here's a map of permafrost carbon. This is between zero and three meters depth. And it, the numbers don't really matter. What's important is that there's a whole lot of frozen carbon. There's twice as much carbon frozen into the permafrost as there is in the atmosphere today. And so naturally, if you thaw out the permafrost, decay will resume and this will release carbon dioxide and methane back into the atmosphere. And this will amplify or increase warming due to the burning of fossil fuels. And so the question is, how much? Well, the estimate is uh, about 0.3 degrees uh, by 2100. Now, this, you know, how much is this really? Well, compared, this is for the, you know, burn everything, the scenario of burn every single kilo of fossil fuel you can get your hands on, the business as usual scenario. And this corresponds to roughly 8% of the warming compared to anthropogenic. Okay, that the, the walk away message here is that burning of fossil fuels is going to totally dominate climate change. There's no doubt about that. But this will contribute to it. it the con contribution from permafrost is not zero. It's not negligible. And this has actually, you know, big implications. When we try to implement the Paris Accord, you know, everyone's got to reduce a bit more. But to hit that two-degree warming target, that means we got to reduce everyone's targets by another 8%. And this has really big economic impacts, as you might imagine. And there's more things going on here as well. Or, uh, you met, Rich mentioned mercury. You know, mercury is a natural contaminant. It's been here since the beginning of time, and it tends to bond to organic matter. Now, this is one of the biggest organic matter pools on the planet. It happens to be the biggest mercury pool as well. And so when you decay the organic matter, the mercury will get released as well. What, what, what happens to it after that is a big question mark. No one knows. But it's a, another risk factor. Now, like the other speakers, you know, the other speakers are starting to talk about solutions as well. And, you know, I, quite honestly, when we give courses in this, like in climatology, this, the students call it the gloom and doom course. Because it's, it, yeah, yeah, you present all this information on climate change and it does not paint a rosy picture. But I wanted to take a total switch here and talk about, you know, options and opportunities. And quite honestly, um, global climate change represents the biggest opportunity for economic growth in the 21st century. And I, by that I mean we're talking about huge economic <laughs> growth, 
I'm an American. I got to be biased. I'm talking jobs in America, American industry, American jobs. It, you know, why do I say this? Well, we are going to have to reduce our carbon footprint. We need low carbon options, and the the companies, the countries that make those low carbon options first, are going to make the the economic growth, make the jobs. Personally, I would like to see that here in the United States. If we don't do that, to do that requires investment and thinking and planning and policy. And you know, if we do that, then we'll get the, the growth here in the United States. But if we don't do that, we're going to still need the products, and so we're going to have to buy them from China. And so you know, what options do we have? Well, actually, there's a huge number of options available to us. There's dozens upon dozens of various policy instruments that you could set in place from top-down EPA-type requirements to simple rebates and tax structures. And all this, the whole idea is to try to create what I would call economic tipping points. I think it's going to be very hard to force people to change all their behavior. But if you give them a choice, they'll probably choose what you'd like. For example, um, we, we all see the electric cars are getting more and more popular. And you know, to make it work, what you got to do is bring the cost of an electric car down to be comparable or competitive with a gasoline-powered car. And if you do that, people are going to choose the electric car because we all know it's cheaper on gas. Well, there is no gas. And so what you got to do is you got to create these kind of economic tipping points. And you know, what exactly is an economic tipping point? It's a total shift in buying patterns or purchasing patterns. And I think we've all seen a number of these within our lifetimes. How many people buy Betamax or VCR tapes? Well, none. You know, and we went from albums to cassettes to CDs, and now we don't do CDs anymore. We all download. Those are all tipping points. Um, another a really good example I like to use is uh, cars. You know, in the early 1900s, around turn of the century, the last century, sorry, uh, New York, believe it or not, was actually seriously concerned about the amount of horse manure because there's horses everywhere, and they couldn't get rid of the horse manure. Now, you take a, take a look at the exact same location 20 years later, there's not a single horse there. Cars totally replaced them. Right? Why? Well, the cars were cheaper. They're easy to maintain and much more flexible than horses. And so naturally, people switched over to cars. And it's totally irreversible. It's not going back. And I think in other areas, we see the same thing going on uh, in the coal industry. is a very good example right now. Um, the coal industry is in serious decline. It's unlikely to rebound. Why? It's because people who want to consume energy, it's cheaper to do wind, solar, and natural gas. And so naturally they buy that instead of coal. There is no war on coal. It's strictly economics. Probably within 20 years, you won't see an open coal mine in the country. And that's because the other sources are, are, are cheaper. And so anyway, I'm just saying we can control and change our behavior, but we have to set up a policy or an environment that would give the consumers a choice and a choice leaning towards low carbon options. And in doing so, we reduce our carbon footprints, but we also promote economic growth. Anyway, thank you.
so much, Kevin. Real, real interesting and important. So, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention, please introduce yourself if you have a question. Just a couple now, and we'll have a lot at the end, too. Please. Hi, I'm Blessed Elon, a freelancer. Um, so the well, ultimate goal in terms of working with permafrost, is it just to stop the melting? Because there's no, like, there's no going back, right? You can't, like, re-freeze this necessarily if it's melting and changing the tank, you know? Yeah, the question was, can we go back once the permafrost thaws? And the answer is no. Once you thaw out the permafrost and decay the organic matter, there's no way to get it back into the permafrost, even if you refreeze the permafrost. Mm -hmm. So it, it's uh, considered uh, an environmental tipping point or a climate tipping point because it's uh, one way and it's not reversible. Uh, I would like to point out, though, that it's a very slow tipping point. Uh, you, you listen to other climate tipping points and they talk about changing in a couple of years or a couple of decades. With permafrost, it's two or three centuries. So I, I show on here a, a climate warming by 2100 of 0.3. The emissions are going to continue for two or 300 years more. And you go out to 2300, it's now double that. So it would be 0.6. And so it's a permanent load on on the, the, the climate. So, yes, it's irreversible. Mayor Subramanian, independent journalist. Um, can you just follow up on that? When you said that, that striking um, number that it had twice as much carbon held in it than in the atmosphere, but then you're saying that it's not the same. Is that just because there's, it's such a wide landmass, and as it's warming, it's really just the fringes of it that reaches a. Oh, I, I wish I had brought an animation to illustrate. The question was. If I repeat, you know, where's the carbon coming from? Um, the picture I showed was for the top three meters of soil. That's the carbon that's accumulated since the last ice age. Before, in the last ice age, the, the ground's covered with glaciers, and so there was no carbon underneath it. Uh, it gets buried and frozen. And if, um, in the, the business as usual scenario, most of the permafrost in the top few meters is going to completely thaw out. So yeah, that, that's what I'm talking about. Did that answer your question? I, maybe? <laughs> And for the people who live there and the ecosystems that are in the permafrost regions, it is an ex 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 existential problem. Because if you thaw out the permafrost, you are going to fundamentally and radically change the ecosystem and the hydrology. And what happens after that is a big question. Uh, I just am a positive person, and I think <laughs> that we as a global society can actually address these problems and make these changes uh, before it gets totally out of control. And so they, that's why I'm trying to paint a positive picture. We, the scientists, we have a tendency to just, you know, the gloom and doom. I think we also have a responsibility to show that there's a path forward. Okay. So, okay. All right. I'm sorry, we'll say that I'll, I'll call on you first at the open part. And I just want to make sure John has time to do his presentation. Thank you. Thank you. 
All right, thanks, Diana. Uh, thanks uh, for the opportunity to be here to participate in such a great panel. Uh, my name is John Field, and I'm going to be talking a little bit uh, in the solutions space about biochar, carbon negative bioenergy, and you know what those mean for soils, how they interact with soils. And to start things off, uh, you know some some terminology. Uh, that's been more and more prominent uh, recently. We talk about negative emissions, carbon dioxide removal, or CDR, and then drawdown. And these, these terms all refer to this idea that most of the pathways that remain to uh, uh, two degrees Celsius uh, climate change, or, or even uh, more difficult, 1.5 degrees Celsius climate change, many if not most of those pathways involve removing large amounts of carbon from the atmosphere. And there's a whole range of options for doing this. Things as uh, straightforward as uh, reforestation, growing more trees, storing more carbon you know, in, in natural ecosystems, all the way up to direct air capture, DAC, you know, inventing these new technologies, these giant machines that are going to capture this very dilute CO2 in the atmosphere, compress it, and then store it underground in, in permanent geological storage. Uh, it's been flying under the radar for a while that, uh, that these technologies are, are so important. Uh, but since the, the Paris Accords and some of the more recent reports, including the National Academies report that uh, Keith was involved in, these are starting to, to get a lot more technology. And I'm going to talk specifically about a couple of things kind of in the middle on this land and technology spectrum here. Uh, the idea of bioenergy with carbon capture and storage and biochar. And so these are similar to the afforestation, reforestation solutions in that you're using land to uh, conduct photosynthesis. You're, you're letting plants grow and, and capture carbon from the atmosphere, incorporate it into their organic matter, their biomass. But rather than just leaving it on the landscape, we're talking about then taking that, harvesting it, and putting it into an engineered supply chain and, and working with it. And there's a lot of controversy as to, you know, which of these things are most realistic, which of these things are, uh, are most technologically feasible, which are going to have reasonable costs in the long term, and, and how much capacity they have for, for carbon drawdown. A lot, of, a lot of potential for, for conflict between the natural solutions versus the engineered solutions here. When we talk about bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, or BECs, what we're talking about, like I said, is, is growing up plants that are capturing CO2 from the atmosphere, harvesting those, putting them some, through some sort of bioenergy supply chain. So this could be just burning them to produce electricity. This could be uh, converting them to, to biofuels or various bioproducts. And in all of those cases, you liberate some, or, or in the case of uh, burning it for electricity, all of the carbon that was uh, uh, contained in that biomass at the point of conversion. Uh, so the idea here is you're going to take that, you're going to compress it, and you're going to inject it underground into wells that are thousands of feet deep below the water table uh, and, and put it into permanent storage there. And this, this sounds a little wacky, uh, but in fact, there are examples of it out there right now. Uh, uh, there is an Archer Daniel Midlands uh, uh, ethanol plant in Decatur, Illinois, of all places, that is doing this. They take the CO2 that's produced when they ferment the corn to, to produce ethanol. It's a very pure uh, stream of CO2. They take it, they take the water out of it, they compress it, and then they are injecting it into 
geological uh, formations uh, locally. And they've stored, I believe, uh, five megatons of carbon dioxide uh, over the course of the last four or five years that they've been doing this. There's other companies that are looking at it as well. Now, one of the things, one of the fundamentals about whether or not this makes a good idea, uh, this is a, a real solution, it, it works out as a good idea, is how uh, sustainable the feedstock is. And there's obviously a lot of controversy and a lot of issues around corn ethanol. There's a lot of interest right now in so-called second generation or cellulosic bioenergy technologies, where instead of food crops, we're growing up things like perennial grasses uh, or, or uh, woody biomass uh, to use uh, in this capacity instead. There's a number of advantages here. Keith kind of alluded to this in the context of perennial uh, agriculture. But uh, you know, compared to corn, if you're growing a grass like switchgrass or, or miscanthus, uh, you have a very, very long growing season. You're not planting it and then harvesting it every, every year. Uh, you're putting a lot of carbon below ground into a permanent root network. Uh, and a side benefit of that uh, is you know, you, you've got a very deep, very extensive root network. You're very efficient in terms of capturing and holding on to nitrogen and other nutrients. Uh, you're not tilling up the ground every year, so you're not using energy to run a tractor back and forth. You're not disturbing and releasing that organic matter associated with that, and you're not getting the erosion that goes along with it. And at the moment, there are very large research programs funded by uh, Department of Agriculture and Department of Energy that are trying to breed and improve and, and, and really understand the, the properties of these different crops. Uh, these different perennial uh, energy crops. So uh, we're part of a project that's based in uh, Oak Ridge National Lab in Tennessee that's focusing on switchgrass and poplar as potential feedstocks. This is some work by colleagues up in uh, Minnesota where they're looking at mixtures of native prairie grasses uh, uh, and, and seeing whether those could be appropriate feedstock crops. I also want to touch on the idea of biochar. This is kind of an alternative to bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. Um, this is the idea that you, uh, you take biomass, you take wood chips or, or uh, grass material, things like that, you heat it up in the context of you know, a biofuel or a bioenergy uh, production uh, uh, scenario, and there's a solid residue that's left over uh, called char or, or, or biochar at the end of that process. And in, in the process of, of the heating and the reactions, the, the carbon that is uh, uh, contained originally in the biomass, some of it's lost to CO2, some of it is going into you know, whatever product you're trying to make, uh, you know, uh, liquid biofuels or things like that. But what's left over has changed in its chemical composition. It's become more aromatic, more, more carbon rings, and it's thought to be very, very stable in, in soil. So if you are using this biochar as a soil amendment, putting it back in the ground in agricultural systems, the thinking is uh, that fraction of the carbon is going to stick around for, for very long time periods. And this has been, uh, there's been a lot of research on this idea in the past 10 years. We actually had the opportunity uh, to host the Biochar and Bioenergy Conference uh, here in Fort Collins this past summer. So it was a great venue for getting about 300 uh, you know, biochar experts from all over the world into the same place talking about some of these exciting ideas. 
And you know, some of the appealing aspects of biochar compared to BECs, where you're talking about very large scales and very energy intensive, you know, compressing gases and injecting them underground, biochar is, is maybe a little bit more of an appropriate technology. It can be done at a variety of different scales. These are some uh, folks we collaborate with in Southern California that produce uh, engineered biochar at a commercial scale in a, in a you know, kind of an intermediate size facility there. Uh, then they, they market this all over the country. I had the opportunity a few years back to uh, visit facilities uh, in rural Cambodia uh, at, at rice mills where they, were, they had these, uh, these gas fire systems installed. They would take the, the leftover waste product, the organic waste product that's left over after you're milling your rice, they would take that, they would convert it to energy to power the rice mill, and then they would co-produce this, this uh, uh, rice husk biochar that could then be used in local agricultural fields, local rice paddies. And at an even smaller scale, in, uh, in the Philippines, uh, there, there's a lot of work on uh, uh, cooking stoves that use rice husk as a fuel. And there's a number of benefits to this. You can, you can design these stoves so that they're cleaner than cooking over an open fire, uh, which, which has a huge health burden uh, all over the developing world. And it's a very cheap, very abundant uh, uh, cooking fuel that, that people then have access to. So, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting alternative to some of these, you know, kind of larger scale top bottom or uh, top down type technologies uh, that we talk about. And so then finally, just to end on you know, some of the reasons why you might want to use biochar as a soil amendment in, in agricultural systems. So we talked about it's a way to potentially store carbon uh, for very long uh, time periods. But then it also has a number of agricultural benefits. It, it changes the soil structure. It changes how it holds on to water. It can change the pH of the soil changes how it interacts with, with nutrients. Uh, there are, in, in some scenarios, there are yield benefits associated with that. So our partners at Cool Planet, who had the, the facility in the, in the previous slide, have done agricultural trials all over the country, uh, including some here uh, at, at Colorado State University. And the, the global average of all of the, the field trials that they've done in a variety of different crops, everything from corn to strawberries to orchard uh, uh, fruits and, and things like that, they see uh, a, a 12 to 13 percent increase in, in yield associated with that. So, you know, some inherent uh, intrinsic economic value to farmers and producers. On top of that, uh, it's been well documented that biochar application can reduce N2O emissions. So this really potent greenhouse gas uh, that, that is uh, uh, you know, fairly difficult to control in agricultural systems, anywhere from a 20 to 40% uh, uh, reduction in that. And then finally, you know, kind of a, a, a frontier idea that's out there that this sounded crazy to me when I first heard about it, but uh, there's, there's more and more research right now in using biochar as a trace uh, uh, supplement in animal feed. So on the order of 1% by mass, uh, there's, there's actually some folks uh, up the road in, in Laramie, Wyoming uh, that are doing this. Um, a lot of work in Australia and, and Europe and other places. But the idea here is that this, this material is, is very similar to activated uh, charcoal or activated carbon. And at very small doses, it has some uh, 
potential benefits for animal health, for, for GI tract uh, health in the animals as an alternative to using a lot of antibiotics in livestock production. And interestingly, uh, there, there's just a little bit of preliminary evidence right now that it can help reduce uh, enteric methane emissions. So these are, you know, enteric, enteric methane and then N2O, these are these really tough to reduce uh, you know, non-CO2 greenhouse gases in agriculture that uh, biochar potentially plays into. So, uh, you know, when we talk about drawdown, when we talk about carbon dioxide removal, there's a lot of controversies and a lot of debate there. But I think there's potentially a lot of opportunities for synergy as long as we're willing to investigate those. So thank you. Thanks, John. That was really fascinating. And biochar effects are real important for many of us journalists. Let's take uh, two, two questions for uh, John, and then we'll open it up to the whole, the whole panel. Uh, yes, please, and please introduce yourself. Uh, Jess Burns with Oregon Public Broadcasting. Is there, a, is there an upper limit to how much biochar can go into soil before it starts interfering with other soil functions? That's a really good question. Uh, so how, is there an upper limit to how much uh, biochar you, you're practically going to going to put uh, into agricultural systems. Uh, I, so the, the, the thinking there is that you can store, you can potentially store more biochar in agricultural systems than you could other sorts of organic material. So if you're comparing, uh, you know, applying biochar to, you know, leaving crop residues in place or applying manure, things like that, it's, it's more stable over time. You can build up, you know, more organic matter in the system. Uh, if and when that gets to the point where it's causing a problem is, is a good question. Uh, and I'm not sure that um, I have an answer to it. I know that a lot of the biochar research uh, that's done is is criticized for uh, having unrealistically high application rates from an economic perspective. So I think you're going to find uh, that it is uneconomical, uh, you know, from a farmer's per perspective, a producer's perspective, before you would start causing uh, issues like that. But I, I'm not sure anyone's really researched it systematically. And we had a question over here. Mm -hmm. uh, one question when I was doing a lot of reporting in India was seeing biochar being produced and used on a small scale and you know 55 barrel drums husks going in incredibly smoky. I'm wondering if there is any science you can direct me to that, that quantifies the amount of carbon like the whole footprint start to finish in terms of from the, that most in the field that's probably happening a lot compared to you know a California operation that's obviously going to be regulating all the temperature Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the question was about, um, you know, uh, smoke and air pollution production with, with uh, small-scale uh, biochar production systems. And, you know, is there quantification of kind of the system-level uh, impacts of that? And so, yeah, that, that's kind of the, the, the world that I come from is life cycle assessment. Uh, so that's the engineering discipline of trying to analyze the whole cradle-to-grave supply chain. And we've done a little bit of work in the past looking at that exact issue because at the small scale and even the, the, the medium scale, when biochar was first kind of catching on here in, in uh, certain spots in Colorado maybe 10 years ago, uh, you would go visit these production facilities. They were a little bit bigger than the 55-gallon drum, uh, and they were just 
very, very, very smoky. And you kind of wonder, like, gee, are, are you really doing a good thing here if you're creating all this air pollution here in the, in the, in the front range? Uh, so we, uh, we tried to put some numbers on that, and I can refer you to the, the paper. And, you know, basically we found that if, if you're doing it the, the smokiest way, uh, uh, that you basically negate all of the carbon sequestration benefits of that char, and, and you, you, you come out neutral, but then worse from a public health standpoint because everyone's breathing that smoke. Um, the, the real synergy, though, is not to have some, you know, big smoky uh, um, system. The real, the real synergy is to try to get as much energy out of the system as possible. And so if you are, you know, co-producing fuels and things like that, you're, you're having a more controlled process. You don't have all this, this smoke release. Uh, if you are... Um, if you have a well-designed uh, cook stove, you know these these are pursued. Uh, the, the biochar here is an afterthought. It's it's a byproduct that it's nice that there's something productive to do with it. But the real uh, impetus for developing these these uh, uh, more efficient cook stoves is to reduce that air pollution uh, uh, source. It's they're still maybe not as clean as. Uh, you know, uh, modern fossil fuels or electric cooking or things like that. Uh, but there's been a lot of research done, including here at, at CSU in the engineering program, uh, to try to get uh, uh, close. So, you know, 60, 70, 80 percent reductions compared to the open fire. Okay, thanks. We're, we're going to open it up. Um, I'll just quickly add for that question. The National Academies has a lot of life cycle assessments, emphases in their report. Okay, okay thank you. Um, well, Rich Blast, we're going to open this up. Uh, please identify yourself, and we have um, uh, SEJ people first. Anybody want to ask? I just I did over over oh, miss yeah. you, but let me just you oh, go first. It was about methane. I was wondering if you're. And my name's Meg Wilcox. I'm a freelancer. Um, it was whether your calculations were wrong included methane. Like just carbon dioxide. Uh, that estimate included methane. About four percent give or take 1% of total emissions is in the form of methane. That warming included the effects of methane. Okay. I, I just ran out of space. I didn't put <laughs> methane in there. Thanks very much. Let's open up the questions. I'm going to go jump on both sides of the room. Would you go first? Yeah. Right, Please identify yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so the question is, uh, you know, whether bioenergy has climate benefit independent of, you know, capturing the the leftover CO two and, and putting it underground or putting it into biochar or something like that. And uh, yes, it, it, with the caveat that it really depends on your feedstock and and you know whether or not that's being produced sustainably. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the focus for a long time in the bioenergy space was just producing fuels or electricity as an alternative to, to fossil fuel. So if you can make ethanol, you know, uh, w when you fill your car up, that's, that's 
10% ethanol, 90% gasoline, and so that's 10% less gasoline uh, than you would be burning otherwise. And you know, similar things for electricity from uh, you know forest residues and things like that. So there's definitely a benefit there. Uh, you know, we've done some calculations recently that if you you know, take that benefit and then you're doing this, you know, carbon capture and storage and, and you know, sequestering the leftover uh, CO2, uh, you know, in our calculations, you're basically doubling that benefit. It's, it's approximately one-to-one -one the benefit of, you know, avoiding fossil fuel emissions and, you know, directly storing uh, carbon underground. Now that, that ratio changes depending on what sort of energy you're making, uh, you know, what sort of fossil fuel you might be uh, replacing with it. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, there, there's definitely intrinsic benefit to it. But that said, you know, there's, there's been a lot of controversy in the first generation biofuels, things like corn ethanol, things like, um, you know, unsustainably harvested woody biomass. Uh, and there's been a lot of literature that says, you know, gee, you know, the, these don't pencil out when you look at the full supply chain, when you look at how much fertilizer you had to apply with the corn. Um, uh, it's it's very possible to erode any climate benefits at the system level. So it really depends on, you know, what that feedstock is and, and how thoughtful you are about producing it. Okay. Um, just want to ask my own question once for uh, Diana. Sorry about this, but since you mentioned the CBD, is that actual endorsement for a well, you, you've worked on Global Soil Biodiversity Atlas. Is that an uh, endorsement for a global um, biodiversity soil um, survey? It's actually, no, it's, it's much more a, an assessment. So all the assessments on biodiversity have been 99 and 100% above ground and in lakes and streams and in even the ocean. And there are problems with all of those, but they just have never done an assessment of where we are on what we know, where do the organisms occur, that sort of thing, uh, how many are they? That's, so that's, that's what they're calling for now with this Convention on Biological Diversity, and we're working on it. Thank you. Okay, let's see. Question from this side. Anybody have anything? Yeah, Jennifer, um, please. Jennifer Weeks, Center for Conversation. Um, I have a clarifying question for um, Kevin. You talked about economic opportunities in terms of cross-thaw. I just wanted to make sure, you're talking about sort of broad opportunities for development in the Arctic, you're not talking about like actual harvesting. No, I, actually, I'm, I'm not talking about permafrost at all. I, I would, there, I'm talking about, you know, we've got a global treaty, the Paris Accord, and we've got to respond to that. And I'm just saying that as a country, that represents to us a huge, huge opportunity for economic growth. Okay, I was trying to figure out sort of what level you were talking at. So. Yeah, well, in the future, when the, the, you know, people, population expands in the Arctic, there will be, you know, exploitation and expansion there, but that that wasn't quite what I was talking about. Yes. Hi, I'm Cheryl Hogue with Chemical and Engineering News. Um, John, I wanted to follow up with you. You said that the, that the biochar actually helps reduce nitrous oxide emissions. Can you be a little bit more technical about what, how that happens? Uh, <laughs> Not really, but I can point you to some uh, <laughs> some references. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that, that, that's a little bit outside my my area of expertise. Uh, so I was actually uh, uh, doing some searches last night uh, on this, and uh, th there's a lot of these meta analyses out there that kind of compile all of the the experimental evidence from that. Uh, for for I know for a long time it was debated, uh, and there was uh, controversy as to whether it was a pH effect, whether it was a uh, um, 
like a water holding effect, you know, and, and, and changing, uh, uh, you know, how, how much air aeration there is in the soil. I think that most of the literature more recently is, is, is pointing in other directions. Um, but uh, I, I'd have to send you some papers. I'm not an expert. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Does, does Keith know the, the latest and greatest thing? It's a little bit of a mystery, but it, yeah, the nitrous oxide comes from a couple of processes in the soil. One is, a, is an oxidative one in which, in which uh, reduced forms of, of nitrogen, so like ammonium, is nitrified, and then there's a, a release of, of N2O that goes with that. But also the, ma the main loss is in when you have anaerobic soils, then essentially the the microbes are instead of oxygen they're using they're using uh, oxidized forms of, of of nitrogen you know instead of oxygen essentially and so they reduce it and N2O is one of the re reductive products that come out so bio, so the biochar is clearly affecting something in those microbial uh, communities uh, it's a little bit you know I think there are, there are a combination of things pH but it may be things like, you know, enzymes that are being deactivated or other stuff like this. It's actually a very uh, interesting area for new research, and it's, it's kind of a little bit unknown at this point. Yes, please, in the back there. Yeah, I have a follow-up question for uh, John as well. And if, um, if you can identify yourself. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm Nelson. I'm a freelance reporter in Seattle. Um, so uh, when you were talking about the, the potential for biochar, Yeah, so, so, you know, question about how much evidence there is for, uh, uh, you know, GI health improvement in, in different animals and, and reduction in those enteric uh, uh, methane emissions. So this is really new stuff here. This is something that uh, I was actually surprised how much uh, uh, talk there was about this at our conference here in, in July this year. Um, in the past, there, there has been some work. There's been one group in Australia uh, that was publishing on this, you know, maybe four years ago. They were doing very small studies in cattle, uh, you know, trying to look at uh, uh, weight gain rates and trying to look at the enteric methane from the cattle, which is a very difficult thing to, to measure experimentally. So I don't... Uh, I don't know, you know, how reliable those numbers are. They were, uh, they, they were seeing pretty dramatic reductions. I think, sixty percent, or you know, yeah. Very, so it was enough to get a lot of people interested. Since then, just in the last couple years, uh, there have been a lot of research projects starting up. Uh, so there's a, a USDA facility, I think, in in Nebraska, where they can do those methane measurements. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, like I mentioned, we have a, a local, actually two uh, local companies that we collaborate with that are both racing to try to get into this space. Um, I'm not sure how, how good the evidence is. Um, and in terms of the, the, the variety of, of different animals out there that this has been proposed for, so, I, you know, there's definitely been work in cattle production. Uh, I think there's been a little bit of work in, in other ruminants. Uh, and then there's uh, also interest in doing this uh, for um, uh, uh, chicken feed as well. And there was just recently, just in the last few days, there was a, a review article published on this that I, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I can forward it to you if you're interested. 
the uh, question was, are there any geoengineering solutions to protect the permafrost? And um, I have had several people show me potential solutions, and they are completely unworkable, and in some cases would do the exact opposite of what is intended. Uh, it's, it's just not practical. These are vast areas with no one in it, areas the size of Texas with only 100 people living in them. You, you just can't get there. It, you just can't do much. The best solution is to reduce the emissions. Does that answer your question? I hope. <laughs> yeah. Uh, please, please introduce yourself. Yeah. What, what is ADM's uh, incentive yeah, to? Yeah, that, that, that's a very good question. I, I doubt that. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think they, they are forward-looking. I think they, uh, they recognize that it's a potential uh, source of value. So, so uh, as of uh, recently, maybe as of the last year or so, in the, uh, there's a low-carbon fuel standard in California. So there's a market associated with you know, biofuels that, that can uh, uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions and transportation. And I think about a year ago, a year and a half ago, they uh, expanded that so you could claim credit for this uh, carbon capture and storage. So if you are selling into the California market, if, if that ethanol is going to end up in California, there is a, a, a dollar value associated with that. And it's actually a really high one. I think uh, it's, it's around $100 a ton uh, in, in the California market. Um, in, in terms of the energy penalty there, it's, it's a little bit different if you're talking about um, uh, so, so for a long time, the term BEX was just associated with I'm going to burn biomass in a power plant, I'm going to capture the CO2 coming out of the smokestack, and I'm going to put it underground. And that is a pretty energy-intensive uh, process there. And so the, the energy penalty there, depending on who you talk to, is maybe maybe up to 20 or 30 percent of the energy that, that you're actually producing. So that's not trivial. In the context of uh, uh, biofuel production, like the, the ethanol facility uh, in, in Decatur, uh, because the fermentation is producing pure CO2 that's, that just has a little water vapor in it, it's much, much, much less of an energy penalty to do what you have to do there. Thank you. We'll take another five minutes of questions before we can run over a little bit. Yeah, I'm Okay, the question was how receptive are farmers for, uh, you know, these kind of conservation practices and stuff like this. And I would say, um, yeah, I, I, I don't work, uh, uh, you know, that much directly with producers, but, but certainly with some. And, and I, would, I would say that uh, in general, uh, farmers consider themselves stewards of the land. They if they can, uh, if, they, if they're convinced that they're doing something that's improving their soils in particular, and I would say just about every farmer loves healthy soil and they love more organic matter in their soil. Uh, if they can, you know, if they're convinced that, that what, 
you, you know, what you recommend them to do will actually work, then they're pretty much on board as long as they're not going to lose money doing it. So if they can, you know, if they can get an incentive, if either, you know, what I hope for is that a lot of these practices over time pay for themselves because you improve the, 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 the soil quality, the fertility, you get more yield stability, you get uh, uh, capacity to better withstand drought and flood kind of events, then, uh, you know, but perhaps to get there, they need some incentives up front, they need education, they need technology support, they may need, you know, there's a risk in converting your system from one way to another. So if we can get a lot of these, you know, farmers over the hump into a better position, then, then, then the hope is, and, and I think there's, there's support for a lot of those kind of practices will continue on their own because they make good economic sense. No, the question is, was, you know, what, what kind of, uh, you know, per acre uh, potentials there are and, and, and how do we, you know, how do we try to measure these things? And that, you know, this is a really, it's a great question. It's a, it's a you know, kind of at the core of a lot of my research. And I would say in terms of the per acre, uh, it depends a lot. And it's, it's you know, it, it depends on the practice, but it also depends on the practice where it's being applied. Uh, because there are climate impacts, there are you know certain things work on sand, on 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 clay soils and 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 not on sandy soils, and so it's it's pretty complex. Uh, typically, I I would say for most you know if you're looking at annual crop systems and improving those, I would say generally the the kinds of of values you're you're typically looking at somewhere on the order of you know, uh, a ton per per acre or less of, of CO2 equivalents, something like that. Uh, in some places, you might get less. In other places, you got might more. Where you would get higher levels could be things like we were talking about, um, you know, that both John and I mentioned. If you, for example, introduce perennial uh, grasses or something into an annual crop rotation or you go back to a, uh, you know, producing hay or something like that. Those kind of shifts in vegetation could yield quite a bit higher levels. Uh, in terms of, you know, quantification, we can quantify these things. The, the difficulty of doing it, if you're just going to measure everything, is it, it costs a lot to go out and take, we generally have to take destructive, we have to take samples, bring them back to the lab, process them. Uh, so it can be quite expensive if you have to measure on every field what's happening. So the approach that I think most folks are, are leaning towards is you measure in a few places strategically, but then you use model-based systems for, to help with the quantification. And that's some of the stuff that they do and that, that my, my group is working on. We'll just take a couple more questions and then you can approach the speakers. Anybody wish to ask a question here? Uh, Andrew Bloss. 
Pacheco. Uh, my question is about perennial rain. Um, and assuming that our best uh, shots at getting these things to work and be viable um, come to fruition, uh, is there viability also uh, contingent on like, uh, big changes in diet? Like, is society, is there going to be a social risk as well as a scientific risk? Well, <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert on perennial grains, but I would say there, there is going to be certain things like that. You know, you think of, uh, uh, you know, gee, if, if let's say these Kernza yields, if they get up to half the yield of wheat, do we start making, uh, you know, all of our bread out of Kernza? I don't, you know, I've actually had cookies and cakes made out of it tastes really good but you know some people might you know might not want it right or you make in pasta you need wheat flour i don't think we're ever going to replace you know our our main food grains you know corn and wheat and and things like this but the question is do we you know, do, do we supplement them perhaps with some of these kind of niche crops? And then, you know, I would say also more importantly, maybe we can take corn and wheat and some of our other mainstream crops that we're going to have, and can we change their genetics in a way that they also, okay, they're still annuals, but they're more effective at, at storing carbon than they are currently. Yeah, yeah, no, the great question is, is about safety and, and side effects of the geological sequestration of CO2. Uh, and I, I am not an expert on that particular facility. I know that there is a, because it was kind of an exploratory pilot program, that there was a, a large monitoring effort associated with that where they, my understanding is that they, you know, they have the one well where they're pumping this stuff down, that they drill other wells uh, so they can measure the pressure and see how things are, you know, moving around and stabilizing or not underground. So there's there's been, a, a I think, a robust monitoring effort there because it is kind of a first-of-its-kind uh, sort of thing. Uh, in general, there's a lot of experience in the uh, petroleum industry with moving CO2 around underground. So it's, it's not like this is brand-new science. It's a new application, but there's a lot of expertise there. And there was just recently, uh, just in the last week or so, a, a high-profile uh, review paper published uh, uh, trying to answer this question about safety issues and, and leak rates and, and how much information there is. And, and I think that came to the conclusion that, you know, this, the leak rates are going to be very, very low and, and they're not expecting big safety issues. Uh, but I can forward that if it's of interest. I just wanted to say I grew up near Decatur, and it sits on a giant limestone formation. Okay. Uh, tremendous thanks for all of you being here and for our expert panel. And hope you'll come.